Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, what we want to do is to not only think about things global, but also things personal. We not only want to think about things temporal, we want to see it in relationship to everything that's eternal. There we find our God. You are the Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In eternity past, in your sovereign purposes, your plan to create the world, which you did, ex nihilo, creating something out of nothing. Yet in your sovereign purposes, you allow for the fall of humanity, and we today, we are inheritors of Adam's sinful nature. But we praise you because you broke into time and sent second member of the Trinity, Jesus. 100% man, 100% God, two natures and one person is the perfect sacrifice to die in our place for our sins. And we praise you. We thank you. And now, as the Bible teaches us, seated at the right hand to someday return. We find ourselves suspended between what has happened and what is still to come. And we live our lives in the today in light of the tomorrow of eternity. So, Father, help us to better understand who you are and how you are working. Allow us to have our eyes open to your word, our hearts responsive to your will. So in these minutes together, our prayer once again is that you would warm these hearts that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. Come here, Father, again to see Jesus and him only. And praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. As our family was standing in front of a plaque in Westminster Abbey, looking at the plaque commemorating the life of David Livingston. My mind went back, you see, to the story of the days leading towards his placement in Westminster Abbey. Because in 1873, when he died, the Africans realized this man's heart was in Africa, but his body belonged to England. And so they embalmed the body and had the body returned. But when the body was brought into England, the evaluators of the body weren't initially able to discern whether or not this was Livingston until they heard the story, the fact that Livingston went one-on-one with a lion, a lion that had crushed the arm of Livingston, and then examining very carefully the arm, they were able to validate that this truly was the body of that famed missionary. Placed in Westminster Abbey, what seized my attention at that point when we stood together as a group was the phrase, the opening phrase, the gravestone, where it reads, quote, brought by faithful hand over land and sea, unquote. 
what you and I find is that these Jewish people that are resettling once again in the promised land have been brought there by the faithful hand of God. And when you consider your life journey, you've got to find those strategic points in time where that faithful hand of God maybe interrupted the path that you're on, detoured you away from the path you're on to place yourself firmly in the setting that God wanted you to be, in the relationships that God wanted you to experience, to do the work that God had called you to do. These people have come face to face with the sovereign God who, by his faithful hand, has orchestrated events so that 900 miles have been traveled in order to get back to this promised land. It could have been a bit of a lonely journey because five out of six people of Judah chose to remain in Babylon. Only one out of six returned. Sometimes you're going to feel like you're part of the few. But what you've got to bear in mind is that when you feel like you're part of the few, nonetheless, you're in the hand of the sovereign God who's not only watching you, he is watching over you in your life journey. So no matter what you're facing right now in your life, I want you to be thinking very carefully of how the sovereign hand of God is guiding you and directing you, even in the most difficult situations of life, towards what it is that God has before you. What I want to do is to draw out three significant implications here of the faithfulness of God found here, but continuously relating them to 2016 living today. And the first flows out of verse 1 through 7. And we're going to phrase it like this, number one, that in light of God's faithfulness, I want you to note with me first the priorities, the priorities of God's people. You pick it up now in verse one. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, catching their breath, you know, it's been a long, long journey. Watch the wording. Do you see it? The people gathered as one man in Jerusalem. The very onset here, what I want you to see is the unity of these people. A strong, healthy, vibrant church, no matter how many services we have. There is a sense of a oneness that is shaped by God's word under the lordship of God's son, guided by God's spirit. And so you and I find here that they are establishing themselves with a sense of unity. But you see, if you're going to establish yourself among God's people with a sense of unity, you better firmly establish in your mind the sense of biblical priority. Because priority governs unity. And here it is. Because in verse 2, then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedek, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, Marcus, 
they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. First things first. Before they go about building their income, before they go about planting their gardens, before they go about establishing themselves physically within that land, they position themselves spiritually before their Lord. Do you do that? Even in the midst of their wanderings, and this is a multi-generational gathering of people, less than 50,000 have returned now to the promised land. Five out of six had remained in the land of Babylon. They do what their forefather Abram did. What did he do? When he came from Ur of the Chaldees, the land that we would then describe as Babylon, today modern-day Iraq, and settled in the promised land. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, where we're told that the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar. First things first. It's critically important that you're asking yourself, am I following God's supreme priority for my life? Or do I find myself chaotically substituting by convenience my priority plan for God's, but then still ask God to bless it? It was not enough for these people to say, we made it. We're here. We've arrived. What astounds me about the strategic, wise, gutsy leadership is that they say that's not sufficient. First things first. We are going to seek God now. The God who guided us by his hand is the God who should be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So gathered as they are, as one man, there's unity. We understand that biblical priority shapes biblical unity. That's true for the family. Establish the priorities that God has for the home, and then watch how there will be a growing subtleness of unity among people in the home if they are saying that they are committed to Jesus Christ. And so here we have the leadership in verse 2. They're taking the lead. Leadership involves initiative. Doing what others have not yet done. Setting the pace. And here now, Jeshua and Zerubbabel set the pace. They see no altar on the landscape, but it's not enough for them to say, we've, we've arrived. We've got to pursue God. And it's not enough for you to be able to say, whether it be regarding matters of family, with regards to income, with regard to job situations, with regard to health. I've arrived. I've got good news. First things first. Good news or bad news? Seek God. These people are tired from their journey. Yet they build the altar. 
And they build this altar, you see, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. But notice what comes next. As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. In other words, what they are saying is that we are going to follow the prescription that is God's word. And this is why, again, week by week, day by day, we work through text verse by verse. Because we are continuously concerned with what is written. And when you're burdened for that and you are committed to that, then you have a better sense of God's priority, you see, for your life. Augustine, I thought you had arrived making his way to Rome, trying to flee his background. You ever try to do that, run from your past? But you can't outrun God. And there he finds himself, now all of a sudden, trying to address the issues of his life, sitting in a garden with his friend as described in his confessions. Utterly silent and still in the summer heat. Oh Lord, he's asking, how long? Will I never cease setting my heart on shadows and following a lie? God's working here. Is he doing that in your heart? How long, O oh Lord? You ever asked that question? Will you be angry forever? How long? Tomorrow and another tomorrow? Why not now? Involve yourself now. And then all of a sudden he hears this voice. It's a child's voice. Seems to be coming from a nearby house. Repeated over and over again. Take up and read. Take up and read. What do the words mean, he wonders. Is this some part of a child's game? Take up and read. Were the words for him? He turns to his buddy Appius. Do you hear that? His friend stares at him in silence. Read what, cries Augustine. And then it dawns on him. It's time to explore what is written. He snatches a Bible, begins to read the page of a particular book that he opens to in Romans. And lo and behold, finds himself drawn to a particular verse that addresses the issues of the hour of his heart. And he becomes a man committed to what is written. When you are firmly committed to God's priorities, not your priorities, and when you are longing for a sense of unity based upon God's priorities rather than disunity based upon human priorities, it's critically important you and I deal with, well, what is written? And what seizes your attention is that that phrase, written, that word written, is going to appear again. Look for repetition. It's God's way in your life and mine of getting our attention. Just as that one of a prior era, Abram, made his way from Ur of the Chaldees, later a region known as Babylonia, and sets up an altar 
Genesis 12, verses 7 and 8. So we find now these people returning from where? Babylonia, doing what? First things first, as prescribed as it is written, and therefore they set up this altar. You're doing first things first. Or you're settling for doing second things first. So in verse 3, they set the altar in its place, and then here's reality. This is life. Notice the tension between faith and fear. Do you face that in your life? They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. This is the modern Palestinian issue of today likewise. Because there were people that were already there in the land that thought that that was their land. And now here come the people from Judah arriving from Babylon And they're trying to make this their land. And the question is, in whose land is this land? And the answer is, God's. You've got to go to the promise to understand the owner. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. What do you do when you face such fear? Maybe you follow Cornelius Martin's approach. He was a pastor in the 1920s in the Soviet Union, taken to the office of the local communist party boss for interrogation. Party boss ordered two men to strip Martins of his clothes, but Martins told them, don't trouble, I'll undress. Adding, quote, I don't fear to die, for I shall be going home to the Lord. And if he has decided my hour has not yet come, you can't do me any harm here. Well, this remark got the Communist Party boss upset and said, I'll prove to you that your God will not deliver you out of my hands. And he lifted his revolver to drop Martins in his tracks, but his finger froze on the trigger. Not once, not twice. Three times he tried to fire and failed. The biographer says that his face grew red. His body began to shake. He looked like he was ready for a coronary. At last he lowered the gun and asked another official what Martins was condemned for. And the official whispered into his ear, He's a Christian. You can't put your hand on him. Can't you see God is fighting for him? We're told that the party boss then waved his hand at Martins. Get out of here. And meanwhile, a gravestone in Westminster Abbey reads, brought by the faithful hand. Over London Sea. No matter what you're facing right now and in these coming days, are you entrusting yourself into that faithful hand of your sovereign God? You see, there's always in the realities of life the tension between faith and fear. 
they've built this altar. We see that in verses 1 and 2. And yet we are addressing the issue of fear in verse 3. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. The Palestinian issue. They offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. Notice the spiritual disciplines here. But what stands out is that when you read Leviticus 1 with regard to burnt offerings, you will find that the burnt offerings are not merely an external command. They are to be reflective of an internal reality. In other words, it is the statement of gratitude in response to the work of grace. Are you making a statement attitude with regard to the whole matter of the grace of God in your life, even when tough times come. 900 miles, these people are wearied. Multi-generational, they're looking back at the conveniences and thinking about the five out of the six that remained because they would choose which was comfortable rather than seeking to do God's will and being conformable to the word of the Lord. Which are you? In verse 5, in their spiritual disciplines, they kept the Feast of Booths, but mark it as it is written. You just can't escape that stuff, can you? Again and again and again, we find the word again and again and again as it is written. And so in verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But now we've got another tension on our hands. We're up to verse 6. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. If there's a sense of incompleteness in your life, bear this in mind. They've established an altar to the Lord. At the same time, they are recognizing they have yet to build a foundation for the Lord. They are not willing to live off of the altar without building the foundation, but they will offer burnt offerings on that altar and then pursue laying the foundation. They are not going to live off of what they have just achieved. There's more to be done, and I want to say the same thing to you. Do not live off of what you've already achieved. There is more to be done, no matter how young, no matter how old, no matter wealth or health. By God's grace, you've got to be thinking of what's next. In verse 6, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, another but. But the foundation of the Lord was not yet laid. What are you going to do? Shades of the days in which that temple of Solomon was constructed. History repeats itself. So in 7, they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians to build cedar trees, bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, you see, king of Persia. There's more to be done. What I want to say to you this morning is no matter how you're feeling, no matter what you're facing, until that final breath, there is more to be done. 
but it's got to be done in accordance to God's priorities. Not ours. First things. Don't make second things first. In light of God's faithfulness, then note the priorities of God's people and how God's priorities shape our unity. How God's priority gives us a sense of what has been done and what still needs to be done. But now we're led here in verses 8 through 13 to a second implication. In light of God's faithfulness, number two, note the responsibilities for God's people. You check out your responsibilities in light of what is written. So beginning in verse 8 now, once you understand your priorities, now you fulfill your responsibilities. In the second year after their coming in the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, shades again even timing-wise of the construction of the prior temple under Solomon. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning. Mark that. Made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests, and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They made a beginning. But do you see the wording? They made a beginning together. Again, unity. Not only driven by priority in verses 1 through 7, unity based upon responsibility found in the 8 through 13. It's a beginning. Let me now say this to you. Don't despise small beginnings. You might be starting something small at a later stage of life. You might be starting small when you're not feeling the greatest. You might be starting something small in the earlier stages of life. But don't despise small beginnings. The embryo within the womb of Mary. A small beginning. Bethlehem within the setting of the Roman Empire. A small beginning. He was a young English boy. He was given the nickname Caratop by other students, given little chance of success by his teachers. Ranked third lowest in his class. Poor report cards. Teacher's report read, the boy is certainly no scholar, has repeated his grade twice. He's got a stubborn streak, sometimes rebellious in nature. Little or no understanding of schoolwork, except in the most mechanical way. It seems almost perverse in his ability to learn, not making the most of his opportunities. He grew up. History knows him as Winston Churchill. Don't despise small beginnings. There's a potentiality here in what we are processing here. And when you are matching together the priorities of 1 through 7, as it is written, with the responsibilities that God calls you to, no matter how mundane or how exciting in 8 through 13, bear this in mind, you are an as-it-is-written person in your approach to life. 
You don't despise small beginnings, but notice that this was a beginning done together. Look for togetherness. These people have shared 900 miles of journey together. They have seen the priority of building an altar together. They are now laying a foundation for the temple together. Look for the tremendous value of unity in the midst of priority. The tremendous sense of unity in the realm of responsibility. And you keep reading. Here is a leadership principle in verse 9. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers. And Cadmio and his sons, the sons of Judah. Here it comes. Together. Do you see it in verse 9? That's unity. Supervised. That's leadership. The workmen of the house of God. Along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. For the current and for the future leadership of this congregation, Ezra and Nehemiah is a brilliant, a brilliant manuscript on leadership development. And here you find now that the builders in verse 10 are laying the foundation of the temple of the Lord. And the priests and their vestments, they come forward. Something significant of this beginning has taken place. What do you do when something of significance has occurred? You stop and you praise God. They're not going to wait until everything is done. You've got to seize moments of worship in the course of your life experience because it brings not only glory to God but clarity to life as to who's really in charge. And so they pull out the cymbals and all the musical instruments and they're praising the Lord in verse 10. But they're doing so, and here you have it again. Worship needs to be guided by the word according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And what do they do? Man, they sung. They might be tired with their hands of work, but they still got a song of music on their lips. And they sang responsively, praise and giving thanks to the Lord. You see, they've seen his grace at work. This is the heart of gratitude directed towards the God of grace. Likewise, when we gather together, this is the heart of gratitude directed towards the God of grace. For he is good. You've got to be able to say it, no matter what you're experiencing right now in your life. For his steadfast love, Hebrew word hesed, endures, not temporally, forever. Toward Israel. They've built something here. You're building something with your life. You hear the book, Peace Child? Don Richardson's ministry with the Sawi people of the Irian Jaya. When he and his wife arrived in 1962, they encountered a culture, the book tells us, where there was deception, where there were lies, there were trickery, treachery. But through patient, ongoing efforts, the gospel slowly penetrated the tribes. By 1972, there were believers in a number of congregations throughout the region. These people could identify with the story of the Christ child, 
who was sent to earth to bring redemption and peace. As the gospel spread, there arose a need for suitable meeting places for worship. It prompted Don Richardson to propose to build the Sabi Dome, quote, our meeting house, which had already been enlarged twice, was again far too small for gatherings. He looked at the leadership and said it should seat at least a thousand. They were not even there yet. A statement of faith. And it must be a circular building with a cone-shaped roof. Any other design in a building so large will be too weak for monsoon storms, considering the kind of materials we have to work with. The decision was entirely theirs to make. The structure would be their property, he wrote, not mine. They would need to gather and prepare thousands of poles, tens of thousands of sago leaves for thatch, hundreds of yards, tying vines and other jungle materials for the project. And Don, who was familiar with the Sawi's intricately built treehouses, was confident of their building skills. And with his encouragement, the people agreed to take on the project. And the following Sunday, all the native Christians were urged to attend a meeting and the building project was presented at a house, and the response was one of Asefem, Asefem, let us build, let us build. And the writer concludes As in the days of Ezra, the people had spoken with one voice. Within months, this massive dome building was dedicated to the Lord. For he is good. For his steadfast love, Hesed in the Hebrew, endures forever, not buried in the past. The people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord. You see it in there in verse 11, because the foundation of the house of the Lord has now been laid. Got our altar, got our foundation, but now we got a problem. Man, life is filled with problems, isn't it? Health problems, job problems, family problems. What I want you to see now is how the evil one, he sees advancement. And bear in mind, when the evil one sees advancement, he is going to use a twofold approach. He will use an internal and he will use an external combination to thwart forward movement. Notice the internal In verse 12, many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men, they ought to know better, who had seen the first house constructed by Solomon, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. Feel the tensions? Evil one is attempting to create conflict generationally an internal conflict. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. But bear this in mind. Number one, you nor I are to glorify the past. You and I are to glorify the Lord. There's a difference between God and the past. Number two, 
these older people were part of that generation that was involved in such sin that in 586 the Babylonians came in and conquered them and swept them off. Those were not the good old days. The good old days happened before the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, you see. But what they are looking at now is something that seems so minimal, but God can do something maximal out of something minimal. A tea kettle singing on the stove suggested Watt's idea of the steam engine. J.L. Kraft's idea of putting cheese in a sanitary package was the start of an enormous business. Watching a spider weave its web gave Robert Bruce the courage to try again. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 19, who has despised the day of small things? Make absolutely certain that when it comes to forward movement, you are using the rudder of the ship, not the anchor of the ship. Too many times we cast anchor when we ought to be managing rudders. So we learn from the past without living in the past. But it leads us now to this third reality check, the third implication, because thirdly, in light of God's faithfulness, note with me the hostilities towards God's people, shades of 2016. Look very carefully now at what's happening here and think about what is going on in the Middle East today. When the adversaries of Jude and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, this happened there. It also happened in 1948 when the Israelites again returned. Verse 2. They approached Zerubbabel and heard of fathers' houses and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you. For we worship your God as you do. Pause. You really think so? Read on. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Azahad and king of Assyria who brought us here. What the Assyrians had done was to take the northern tribes, transport them into Assyrian captivity, and replace them with people of spiritualities from other settings and bring them back to where the northern tribes were. And they commingled, you see, and now they had a spirituality that, yes, would speak of Messiah, but it was Messiah mingled with other beliefs as well. Good leadership has the capacity to discern. It's not enough for an invitation to be part of a community gathering like this. The issue is not the community gathering. The issue is do they commune with God? The exclusive God. You would not believe how many times in my 34 years as a senior pastor I have had to guide a leadership board to say no to things when people in the community want us to be involved in things. Because you've got to be able to distinguish and you've got to be able to discern the various spiritualities that can come together. In this case, there was a spiritual syncretism at stake here. What was involved is the exclusive worship of God here. 
and the challenges that there were political overtures that if the Palestinians of that day and age got control of the temple, this would not be the exclusive devotion to the sovereign God. This would simply be a cathedral of many different religions. Beware. Leaders need to have the capacity to discern. Zerubbabel can discern. So Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us. You know who these people were? And Jesus would speak of them. They're the Samaritans. And when Jesus spoke of the good Samaritan, there was an astounding hush when people began to process all that they'd experienced having to live with Samaritans. You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us, Persia. Generally speaking, modern-day Iran, Persia, the non-Semitic people of the Middle East, Persia, modern-day Iran, ethnically connected to Russia. Is it any wonder in 2016, when you ponder the significance of the treaty that was established regarding nuclear arrangements, that first things that Iran did was they they sent a group to Russia to discuss their relationships with one another. Well, in verse 4, the people of the land, you see, here's your Palestinian issue, discouraged the people of Judah, here are the Jews, and made them afraid. And so here are now the tensions. They made them afraid to build. They discouraged the people. They made them afraid to build. Verse 5, they bribed the counselors. In verse 6, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. What do you do in the face when it seems as though internally and externally there seems to be such tension? You ponder the faithfulness of God. The priorities, the responsibilities, even the hostilities. Go to the cross of Christ, where Jesus faced such hostilities. Even that was part of the plan of God. And then you can nod your head, where, by God's grace, if you find yourself standing someday, if you haven't already, in Westminster Abbey, and you look down at the gravestone of David Livingston, you're able to read, brought by faithful hand over land and sea, What I want to say to you this week, you'll be brought by a faithful hand through what it is and whatever it is you're facing as you trust in him. Let's stand together. There is a richness here in these verses that seems to find its way into 2016 living. We've got to do a first things first your priorities. We examine your responsibilities that you've entrusted to us. And then we examine the hostilities that are faced when we live for the exclusive good. The effect it can have internally within families, externally, what's happening globally. 
But through it all, Father, we see the hand of God faithfully guiding and directing. The ship is not anchored. This ship is being guided by a rudder, by your faithful hand. May each person here understand that and find their sense of peace in knowing that. Praying all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.